I understand that. <laughs> okay, so as we uh, are traveling through First Kings, we're in chapter 29, but, you know, Elijah appears out of nowhere in chapter 17. He tells Ahab it will not rain. Elijah does his showdown at the Carmel Corral and has all the pagan priests there killed. Okay. Um, Elijah prays that it won't rain. Jezebel finds out that he's killed all of the priests and threatens to do the same to Elijah. He takes off running. We saw that. Remember chapter 19? He runs and he runs and he runs. God tells him there are 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. We left off last week where Elisha meets Elijah. And Elisha does away with all his livelihood and follows after him as he puts his hand in the plow and doesn't look back. And here we are in chapter 20. Then, now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all of his forces together. 32 kings were with him, with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. So just kind of remember that, 32 kings, all their stuff, horses, chariots. They're now surrounding Samaria, which is the capital or headquarters of the 10 northern tribes. This is where Ahab is ruling the northern tribes from. Then he sent messengers, Ben-Hadad did, into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. He's claiming it all before he even destroys it. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I am all that I have, I and all that I have are yours. Now, I don't know what you're thinking about that if you're one of the wives of the kids. Like, uh, well, thanks, dad. Thanks, husband. No doubt Jezebel, the finest, is excluded here. At least I would think so. So that's what's reported back. Then the messengers come back and said, thus speaks Ben-Hadad, because the flesh is never satisfied, saying, indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. I'm down on all that. But I will send my servants to you, Ahab, tomorrow about this time. And they're going to search out your house, Ahab. And they're going to search out the houses of your servants, Ahab. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, hey, they're going to put it in their hands and they're going to take it and bring it to me. Well, Ben-Hadad's getting a little greedy if Ahab rolls over that easy. Hey, why don't we just go for everything he has? And that being a little too much for Ahab, verse 7, so the king of Israel called all of the elders of the land, which he should have did it in the beginning, or, or at least looked up and went to the prophet Elijah. And he said to them, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people with a little spine, because remember, Ahab has no spine. His wife does that for him. And, you know, it's like, 
there's no record of her. Maybe she's out of town. Maybe she went to a beauty convention and she's learning how to put on the latest, coolest makeup and stuff because she is definitely into makeup. <clears throat> if you've read ahead, you'll know what I'm talking about. And they all said to him, do not listen or consent. Therefore, he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king and all that you, you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. So the messengers departed and brought back word to him. So the stakes are a little higher this time. Ahab says, no way. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me. And more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. In other words, he's going to come kick some honey bun. Please notice what he swears by that. It seems or should sound familiar to us. If you back up a chapter, it's the same thing that Jezebel swore by. The gods do so to me and more also if, Elijah, you are not dead by tomorrow. And, you know, it's kind of two peas in a pod, two religious people threatening God's people the same way. So the king of Israel, but that's that was their gods that they had back then, the gods that they all created. So the king of Israel answered and said, tell him. Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Or in other words, don't count your chickens before they hatch. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey, or in this case, hey, you're not going to get anything till the battle's over. So you better wait till the battle's over to find out what you're going to have. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message. As he and the kings were drinking at the command post because they, they like to. Then he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. And this is where the saying, drinking kills, comes from. They're getting loaded. The challenge has been laid. Ben and Hadad is going to go meet the challenge. After all, Israel only has a few soldiers. But he, but Ben Hadad, like so many, forget to factor in the God factor because you plus Jesus, who is God Almighty, the creator of the universe, is a super majority. And Ben-Hadad not factoring in the God factor, well, he's going to get what's coming to him. Suddenly, a prophet, and it's an unnamed prophet, we don't know who it is, approached Ahab, king of Israel. No doubt this prophet is probably, or is definitely one of the 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude of Ben-Hadad? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, this is an incredible picture of grace team. Ahab is very wicked, but the grace of God is going after Ahab. Please don't miss that. And if God is pursuing Ahab and his wickedness, Hey, man, he's pursuing you, too, in, in your fallenness. Don't, don't listen to the lies of the enemy. He's also pursuing the extremely lost person in your family or in your life. Don't miss that. I am going to do to it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? I mean, Shouldn't just the fact that God said he's going to do something be a good enough reason? Do we really, really need to say by whom or how? I, 
I think you do if you don't have much of a relationship with the living God, if it's rather weak. Jesus speaks some promise to us, and we stop and say, gosh, Jesus, how are you going to do that? This obstacle is so huge, but you said you're going to take care of it. How are you going to do that? Really? Do you really think you're going to get an answer? In our relationship with Jesus today, you may not get an answer. Like Ahab receives here. <coughs> we read in our Bibles in Hebrew chapter 11, verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus wants you and I to take steps of faith, whether it's in direction or tossing out the cigarettes if he says so or turning off the TV if he says so. You just have to obey that. You see, when Jesus says he'll do it in your life, you don't have to worry about how or whom, just need to believe. And that's where it always breaks down. But once you believe and move out, then you can know and, and, and you'll see so many times the hand of God move. But you have to believe whatever that thing is in the Bible that's speaking to you before you act on a team. It's not act and then I'll believe. No, you have to believe. See, as I do is how I believe. As I read the, the living word, if I don't believe, I won't do. It's really that simple. And please notice, it's not believing yourself. It's not the church believing in you. It's not you having more faith to believe. It's not about you at all. It's just simply believing in Jesus at his word and then moving out and watching him blow your mind. But Ahab wants to know by whom. And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you will, Ahab. So the prophet gives Ahab the battle plan. And please notice, Ahab doesn't go, well, how? No, he's, he's very obedient to the godly prophet here. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces. And there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel of the northern kingdom, 7,000. So that's either 7,232 or 7,000 total. Uh, either number works. Either way, it's not much. Remember how many Ben-Hadad ben has? How many kings does he have? 32 plus horses and chariots. You think he's got a little more than 7,232? Yeah, I'm sure he does. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post, 1 Kings chapter 20. So if, if they're getting drunk at noon, if it's summer over there, it's 120 degrees in the desert at noontime. And this battle is over before it even begins, much like the battle of Armageddon. I mean, I mean that's what the kings here are thinking about. They're thinking, we're just going to wipe Israel off the map. And yet that's what the devil wants us to, wants us to think as well. Hey, you can do this thing, no problem, you got this. Or you can't do this even before you begin. Either way, overconfidence or lack of confidence, both viewpoints are going to jam you up. And so the young leaders of the provinces went out first, all 232 of them, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. You know, it's 232 men to 32 kings. So he said, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them 
alive. I was reading uh, some commentators. They said, well, you know, they're drunk, so, you know, they're just coming up with, uh, you know, they should kill them. I wouldn't. Would you? You got a few guys coming out. Why not interrogate them and try and figure out, you know, do some torture or something, figure out where their weakness lies. I don't know why they said that, but that's what they all think. They, they're coming out, so they just think, they, whatever, it's, it's weird. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. 232 dead and the thousands of hired guns and 32 kings are fleeing, and God can do that. Actually, only God can do that. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the nameless prophet, whose God knows all things, came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up, and he'll come up against you. You might want to underline these two words, take note. Ben-Hadad, part two, is coming. As the prophet foretells what's going to happen here. And this is the same for us. When Jesus delivers you through something, will you take note? You know, part two is coming, and then when that happens, part three and part four, and it just keeps, you know, they never stop. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are the gods of the hills. That's why we lost. That's what they're thinking. But back in those times where gods were prevalent everywhere, it was a pretty consistent thinking that, you know, the gods of the hills, the gods of the mountain, the gods of the ocean, gods of the desert, the gods of night, gods of day. They had, they had all these gods. And so I guess no one wants to claim they got whooped up on. Therefore, they were stronger than we, the gods of the mountains. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. Or at least that's what the religion seems to teach them. But it's interesting, they're blaming their loss on the gods of the hills, shopping for an excuse for the loss. It's been around for a long time. And it's a nice thought, but like those who have heard the truth and reject it, they have, they've got to come up with some stupid rationale like this for not believing that they just simply lost. Back then, the rationale was the god of the hills and the god of the plains. Today, the Today, the rationale is, that, well, let's just call it evolution, because there has to be a reason why, but we just not, aren't going to say it's because of God. Verse 24, so do this thing, dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places, and you shall muster an army like the army that you've lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. That's their battle plan. Yeah, stronger than they, but not stronger than their God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that are in them that beat them last time. And so they listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel, just like the prophet said. And the children of Israel were mustered because they were out of ketchup and given provisions, and they went up against them now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. 
Wow, how'd you like to be in that battle? Two little flocks of goats versus an army that fills the countryside. The odds seem overwhelming, but our Jesus loves to work with these odds. See, that way he's glorified and we get to testify of him. It's either God or nothing. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord. Please don't miss the reason why they're going to win. Because the Syrians have said the Lord is God of the hills as they seek to minimize the glory and power of God Almighty, but he is not the God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Please, please observe here. It's not that the enemies are no. God's not concerned with the pagans discovering that the God of Israel is Lord of all. He might be, but that's not his primary mission here. The Lord wants Ahab to know. And you shall know, Ahab, that I am the Lord. Because God's more interested in, God, in his people than his enemies. Ahab... God wants you to know that he's the Lord. And notice it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Hey, Ahab, God wants you to know that the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, heaven and earth is the one that's going to do all this. Not because you're a great man of God walking in my ways, Ahab. But even in your sin, Ahab, I want you to know. I like the picture. Jezebel missing is obvious on the battlefront. No hair salons or beauty parlors out there. And in her absence, Ahab is going to obey again, that he might know that the Lord Yahweh lives and is God of all. And as the Lord proves to these pagans that he's not an isolated God of the hills or of the valleys, but of all creation, I think in some way, shape, and fashion, as followers of Jesus Christ, we might at times, or maybe still do, think that God only works or speaks to us at certain places. I think we might think that at times. I know from years of doing camps with four or 500 kids, multiple times a year, it's like the devil says, I will give the kids victories over their sin up in the mountains at camp. And I'm going to convince them that when they go down the... the to the valleys, to go down the mountain, that they're never going to be able to win. I think a lot of Christians think like that. You go to a men's retreat or a, a women's retreat or a one-day women's conference or a one-day men's conference, and God speaks to you, and you go, okay, I got it, I got it. But then you come home and you go, yeah, I don't got it, I don't got it. What, what God's not the God of the, the valleys, or is he only the God of the retreats? I think we think that way sometimes. You get home and rather than living in the victory from the retreat, now you're just caught up with the same old rat race. I think we think that way at times. If only I could camp out on the mountaintop. I heard that used to hear that so many times. Man, I would be an on-fire Christian. But what about the people in the valley? God cares about them. And they need to see and hear and you need to go back down and tell them. See, Jesus equips us and changes us on the mountaintops or in our daily drawing near to him that we might come down and go out and live for him. Otherwise, the experience is invalid. There wasn't an experience. It's just your emotions playing tricks on you. I, 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 I hope that 
our God, that your God is the God of the valleys. I, I hope so. I hope we don't only serve him on the mountaintops. We can't. When the disciples were first arrested in Acts chapter 3 and put in prison, after they got done telling the religious council, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard, they went to their companions. And they all with one accord raised their voice to God and said, Lord Jesus, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. See, they knew how big their God was and where he ruled. And God honored their faith as they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they went out and spoke the word of God with boldness. See, our Jesus today, who is God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, is with us wherever we go. Amen? I know, but we got to live it out. We have to literally live that out and not go, oh, yeah, praise the Lord on Sunday, but then not live it out during the week. No, we go out into the world, or like lots of churches have, you're now entering the mission field as you pull out of their parking lot. It's time to live it out. It's critical. These guys have to go live it out. And they encamped opposite each other, verse 29, for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. Why? Because God wants Ahab to know that he's the Lord Yahweh. I want you to know that. So the 7,232, if that's still what they had on hand from the previous battle, take on the multitude and 100,000 are dead. That means each Israelite had to kill 13.8 Syrian foot soldiers for that to be accomplished. And you may think, well, you know, that's not bad, 13.8. Okay, we'll get 13.8 people surrounding you. Let's see how good you are. <laughs> no guns, no bombs, just hand-to-hand -hand combat with 13.8 to one odds. But, you know, that's just the way Jesus likes it. There were a few escaped, but God took care of those as well. Look at verse 30. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. Then a wall just so happened to fall in 27,000 of the men who were left. <laughs> Can you say 27,000 killed by the hand of the Lord? I hope so. And Benadad fled, and so Benadad still survives him and a few others, and so they go, they went into the city into an inner chamber. They're hiding in the city. And a wall just so happens to fall on them, and boom, 27,000 men are dead. Only our God can do that. As the ringleader now takes off into hiding in the city, it's pretty obvious what needs to happen here, right? You know? They kill 100,000, they go running and hide in the city, boom, a wall falls on them. Isn't it obvious what's, what needs to happen to the rest of them? Anybody want to take a guess what should happen to the rest of them? Yeah, right? I mean, it's obvious, right? I mean, if you were an observer of this battle and you saw, wow, 100,000 killed, all the rest would take off running, boom, a wall falls on them. What would, don't you think that the conclusion should be, God's will should be that you just, Kill them, all. Kill them all. I mean, right? They they run and hide. They die. He runs and hides. He needs to die. I mean, then his servants, the lone remaining survivors, said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. And just for a footnote, Israel is still, still merciful to their enemies. Of course, if you read the news or listen to the news or anything like that or go to college, it's not presented that way. Israel is extremely merciful. Please let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he'll spare your life. 
So as play actors, they wore sackcloth around their waist and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he, Ahab it seems, said, is he still alive? He is my brother. No, no, no. He's your enemy. Brother only in the terms of another king. This is a pagan king and the Lord God wants you, Ahab, to know that he is Lord Yahweh, so why don't you smite him? But again, Ahab's trying to I don't know. Some guy shows up at your doorstep and says, hi, I'd like to take your wives, kill your children, and take all your stuff. And then in the very, you know, next battle scene, it's like, oh, hey, come on in, brother. <laughs> Can you say he's a little confused? Now, the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at his word and said, your brother Ben had dad. And, and hearing King Ahab use those words, they're jumping at the possibility. So, he said, go, bring them, bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he had him come up into the chariot. Now, I don't know what I would be thinking if I'm Ben-Hadad. 100,000 people died in battle, 27,000 dead as the walls fall on them. If I'm climbing up in the chariot, I'm thinking the guy's got a little dagger in his hand. You know, I mean, I, I doesn't. So Ben-Hadad, the worst negotiator in the world, said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore. <laughs> like, wow, you're a really generous guy. Has he given him anything? Yes or no? No. No, he, it wasn't his to give in the first place. His father stole it from him. Hey, I'll, let me, well, since you're being nice to me, let me tell you what I'll do. I'm going to give you back those, those cities that belong to you in the first place. Wow. You're my friend, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Wow, you're really my friend. That way you can, your people can come up and set up marketplaces and buy from us, and we'll buy from them. And wow, we'll make money off of you, and you can make some money off of us. Wow, what a great deal. Then Ahab, who was the worst negotiator of all, said, I will send you away with this treaty. And that would be a treaty of peace against someone your God has annihilated twice. So he made a treaty with them and sent him away. In other words, I'll give you back all that we took from you. Then this Ben-Hadad guy is not the one in control here. I'll tell you what you can do. Have some cities and why don't you set up shop in my cities like we did in yours so we can make some Jewish money off of you. Ahab is bartering with the enemies and negotiations in the enemy like Eve was. Rather than wiping them out, Ahab makes a treaty with them, but God wanted them wiped out. God wanted Ahab to know that he was God, there was no others, that he might wipe them all out. He wanted Ahab to know that there was only one God of God and one Lord of Lords. But I think Ahab is thinking long-term down the road, like when they return to their pagan ways. What if the prophet doesn't show up? We need someone on our side. What happened if God isn't into wiping out the enemy someday? I need to set myself up in the world just in case God fails or doesn't come through. That's what he's doing. I need to set myself up in the world, in the world system, just in case God doesn't come through. I think a lot of believers live that way today. 
I need to set myself up in the world in case God fails down the road. Trusted God my whole life. He's always proved himself faithful, but now in my final years, I need to set up. I didn't I need to set myself up because I'm not certain I can trust God will come through that for me like he always has. I need to plan ahead for my future. Okay. Down on that. It's kind of a dangerous place to be negotiating with the world system, though, a Babylonian system that gets destroyed. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. Odd request, is it not? <laughs> not when you look at who's making the request. Look at from whom the word came, by the word of the Lord. Plus, it says here that he was one of the sons of the prophets. It, it also said that his prophet spoke this to his neighbor. So his neighbor would have known that he's one of the sons of the prophets. The NIV reads this is one of his fellow prophets. I don't know. The Hebrew word is way too broad to determine that. However, if the prophets live close to one another, then that could be true, that this is his neighbor, a fellow prophet. But I don't see that. Regardless of who the neighbor is, it's so obvious in this Old Testament word picture that obedience to the word of the Lord God Almighty is a big thing to God. So the word from the Lord God Yahweh did not make sense to the man, so he didn't do it. But we must obey whether it makes sense or not, or we're going to be devoured by the lion. We saw that Sunday. I, I even read the verse. Coincidental, it's here. I'm sure it's not that way. So for review purposes, the Bible instructs us to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, if you haven't read ahead, you're thinking, what in the heck am I babbling about? Well, no, that's why you're supposed to read ahead. Here's the picture team for any that have not read ahead. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. Wow, interesting. Certainly, if I'm not obeying the voice of God, I'm pretty easy fodder for the, for the lion to destroy me. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. The importance of obeying and making the lion's job much harder. And so he found another man and said, strike me, please. So what's so crazy about this is, is we don't know if this man is a neighbor. We don't know if he said, by the word of the Lord, strike me. The Bible's silent. So if the Bible's silent, let's just say the prophet didn't say any, either one of those things like he said to his neighbor. So the unknown man was more obedient than the man who should have known. It's interesting. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound, and the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eye. So another object lesson, this time through acting again. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And the prophet hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. 
And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you've let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction. Who's that man here? Benadad. Therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So Ahab blew it again. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased. It's his character trait. And he came to Samaria. So Ahab, the king of Israel, went home and pouted without repenting. Hey, if you're sullen, then why don't you just repent? Too bad that sullen and displeased did not lead to or bring about repentance of heart. It could have if Ahab looked up. That's all Ahab had to do was look up. God spoke to him. All he had to do was look up, and it would have brought about repentance. But instead, Ahab looked within. And when God speaks to you about something, you look within, matter goes from bad to worse. This word selling comes from a root of turning away. Displeased means to boil up. So Ahab is boiling up and turning away. Why? Because he looked within rather than looked up and repented. I think this can happen to us often. You know, we, we look within because we're battling against flesh and blood rather than looking up. And so he goes home as a big baby and has his own private pity party. It came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Je Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard. He's the king. He could have went and took it that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's nearer next to my house. And for it, I'll give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its worth and money. Let's interpret this. I'm lazy. This is close by. It's all about me. I'll give you better or pay top dollar. But this is what I want in a discussion because life is all about what Ahab wants. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid... You know the one that just allowed you to kill 127,000 of your enemies? You know the one that has given you 10 out of the 12 tribes to rule over? The Lord forbid, Ahab, that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. And that makes sense. It was part of the law legally when the land got divided by the tribes and divisions. You can find that in the law. You can't just give it away. And emotionally, it's been my dad's. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased. Did we just read that somewhere? <laughs> so Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased, because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. So it's a bad rerun. But he goes in because of the word that had been spoken to him. Let's call that the word, the, the truth. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed, and turned away his face and said, I am going on a hunger strike and I'm not going to eat food. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, think about this. You've got the whole kingdom. But if you're driven by stuff in your way, you always want a little bit more. In this case, a vegetable garden. See what happens if pouting's not corrected? Moves to a hunger strike. And then it moves from hunger strike until I'm not doing anything until I get my way as he's having, again, his own private pity party, patting on his bed. 
And if you have a godly wife that will tell you the truth, you should be thankful for that because the next verses is what you could have. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Honey, why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? How about taking Ahab to the Lord, lady? How about praying? How about taking your eyes off yourself, honey? Right now, it seems that's what you're doing and fixing them on the Lord. Or, God certainly has a plan for this, Ahab. Let's seek him together, dear. I'll pray for you right now. Those would all be godly things to do. And I would hope that you would never stop your spouse from doing these good things in your life. Because if you do, if you hinder your spouse from being spiritual, this, is, this could be what you get. He said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. Wow, Ahab really sounds like a nice guy, doesn't he? And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Wow. Naboth is not very nice in talking to the king like that. Of course, notice Ahab left out a few details here. I, I personally believe he sets his wife up. See, he doesn't have any spine, but he knows how to push her buttons and how to set her up to get her to react. He knows how to get her to do his dirty work. Of course, they're both going to be judged for it, for both will have Naboth's blood on their hands. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So Jezebel is right in her words of exercise authority. Remember when, when the people asked for a king, God said, if you want a king, let me tell you what they're going to do. They're going to take your best land. They're going to take your best food. They're going to take your best sons and your best daughters. They're going to take your best produce, your best livestock. They already knew that. But she's wrong by how she goes about doing it as she spills innocent blood in the land. I'll do this thing for you, honey. You're the king. Who does this little fruit think he is? I'll take him out. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, making Ahab just as guilty as her, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. So we got some nice, honest politicians here. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people. So in other words, hey, let's have a fast because... There's something wrong in our city. So, you know, put Naboth up high, you know, in a, in a position of honor. And see, two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying that Naboth, you have blasphemed God and the king uh, Naboth, then take him out and stone him that he may die. See, blaspheming God was punishable by stoning. So the men of this city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of the city, the political leaders who were as ungodly as Jezebel herself did as Jezebel had sent to them as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor with high honor among the people and the two men, scoundrels came in and sat before him and somewhere in the course of this fast it appears so there is ungodliness in that land. So they're seeking the Lord, trying to figure out what's going on. The scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him, an innocent man like Jesus, the God-man, outside the city, just like they did to Jesus, and stoned him with stones. Of course, we know they crucified him. 
so that he died, just like they did to Jesus. It only took two witnesses. One witness is not enough, but two was a supermajority. And then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. Wow, how unfortunate for him and how convenient for us. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. But we all know they had no right for the land belonged to the heirs of Naboth now that he died. Unless, of course, out of retribution for blasphemy of God by Naboth, that, that godly king Ahab claimed it as his own because, hey, that man was, was ungodly, so I'll just claim it for myself. I, we don't know if that's what happened, but quite possible. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Please notice that God still calls it the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Man, what a cute story. The woman accomplishes this thing for a man. It appears it's all neatly covered up. Man, that God is good. Well, all right, praise the Lord. But again, the God factor hasn't been figured into the equation, much like for David. David got rid of Uriah. Life was good. They believe it's been six years since we've last heard from Elijah. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. And I'm sure Elijah already knows this is not going to be good. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth. God's still calling it even to this day. For he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord. Have you murdered and also taken possession? David did very similar. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. The Lord wants his men to be bold when he comes to the truth, and he, that's what he's going to declare. Now, here's what's interesting, is that this did not happen to Ahab. God's telling Elijah, look, this is what's going to happen, but it doesn't happen to Ahab. And I believe it doesn't happen because Ahab humbles himself and repents. But it is going to happen to his son. So Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? Who's the enemy? Who's the enemy here? Elijah. Who's being called this evil one? God's man. Not much has changed down through the ages. And he answered, I found you because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I'll bring calamity on you. I'll take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, which was utterly decimated, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. So utter annihilation coming up for Ahab. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. 
But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. So, ladies, let's make sure you're stirring up your men for love and good deeds, ladies, and not the other. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So ladies, please be careful. It says that Jezebel stirred him up. Be careful where you lead your husband. You know, that's a problem in churches as well as at least at Calvary chapels, women leading, causing problems, because that's not the order that God has placed for the church. First Timothy 2 talks about that. So it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his body, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? Please don't miss this picture. This is like one of the most amazing, incredible pictures in the Bible. Can you learn from your mistakes? You can if you know your Lord. And please don't miss this picture. God is always into humility. Jesus is our great high priest who can always sympathize in situations like this. Ahab realizes he messes, he's messed up huge. I mean, the Bible records he's the most wicked king of, of all, at least until Manasseh comes around. Ahab re realizes he messed up, humbles himself, and seeks to do what is right, and it catches the eyes and the heart of God. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me. I would underline that in my Bible. And when the devil lies, like, wow, you really blew it this time. God's done with you. Oh, no, no, no. Because he's humbled himself before me. It's critical. That's, that's one route. The other route is, well, it's not my fault. Well, that's pride. God's going to tear that down. Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. And that would be the calamity that we read of in verse 19. You see, God always makes room and makes a way when humility is in play. Oh, it, everything God said, to, Elijah said to Ahab, is going to happen, but it's going to get passed down to his son. Because why? Because Ahab humbled himself. Look what it says. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. And that's that prophetic word from verse 19. So don't believe the lies of your flesh or the devil who is the father of all lies. If the grace and mercy of God will, will forgive and spare wicked King Ahab when he humbles himself before God, man, Jesus will do the same for you if you will but do the same when you mess up. Humble yourself. Take ownership of it. You will save the humble people but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 28. We all know this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, don't forget that part, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Arise, O Lord. Oh God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Psalms 10, 12. 
For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. Psalm 18, verse 27. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. Psalms 25, 9. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 11, 2. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come because of your words. Daniel 10, verse 12. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the, brow, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he'll lift you up. James 4, 10. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. 1 Peter 5, 6. You see kind of a consistent pattern there? Don't, don't ever let the devil lie to you that you went too far and God is done with you. Don't ever listen to that. Well, you went, you, you really done it this time. You might as well just take your life, man. God's done with you. Look at Ahab here. And how are Jesus, who is God, active with Ahab here? You can always repent and do works befitting repentance, team. I think we got to do that on a daily basis. See, that's what keeps our, 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 our relationship right and current with Jesus. It's also what keeps us in a place of power because in that place of humility, you're going to continually, constantly be asking for the Holy Ghost to fall upon you and to empower you and to fill you up. Don't, this, you know, the two chapters are one thing, but the, the look of God forgiving Ahab as Ahab humbles himself, that's powerful. Father, we're thankful for all that you want to do in our lives. Lord, as we travel through your word, as your word travels in and out of us, 